June 14th, 2018. This is the Hermetic Hour. I am your host, Poke Runyon, Frater Thavion. And tonight we present a discussion on the Holy Grail and the Round Table in Western Magic. To begin this subject, we will review the history of the Grail as presented in our poem, The Cult of the San Grail which we published in our journal, The Seventh Ray, back in 1975, and which has since become the prologue to our first degree, Pastaphorus initiation. We trace the grail from its origin in ancient Phoenicia in the days of Melchizedek around 1500 B.C. It began with the ancient Canaanite god Baal's yearly death, at summer, followed by his resurrection via the chalice of heavenly nectar brought down by his consort, the goddess Astarte, in the fall. We trace this event through a series of mythical evolutions until the grail becomes the cup of resurrection for the last of the dying gods, Jesus the Nazarene, raised by his consort, Mary Magdalene. This is the secret of the Grail tradition, which was carried on through the Arthurian romances. It is a genealogical bloodline and a symbolic ritual implement, one of four Grail hallows presented in the tarot and related to astrology and the internal alchemy of enlightenment. This symbolism is carried forth in the structure of Arthur's, or more properly Merlin's, round table. So, if you would like to know what qualifies an aspirant to become a knight of the round table, tune in and we'll start you on your quest. Now, before we immerse ourselves in this controversial subject, we need to go back and revisit our position on it as revealed in our poem, The Cult of the Saint-Réal, which was published in the old original Seventh Ray, number 15, 1975. Cult of the Saint-Réal has since been adopted as a prologue to our Pastaphorus degree in the, in the Craterapoia initiatory system. In this work, we trace the grail from its origin in ancient Phoenicia in the days of Melchizedek, 1500 B.C., with the death of Baal, the vegetation god, at high summer, resurrected by his lover, the goddess Astarte, in the fall. Now, this dying and resurrecting god myth evolved into the Venus and Adonis recension of later Hellenic times that anthropologist Jesse Weston saw as a direct connection to the latter Christianized version of the Holy Grail, which was thought to be the cup of Christ that Christ offered to his disciples at the Last Supper, and which was said to have caught his blood when he was crucified. Weston cited the Gnostic Nicene document, which traces the ancient sequence or cycle of dying gods from Ishtar and Tammuz, Isis and Osiris, through Venus and Adonis and Athos and Kabele. Weston left the ultimate conclusion of this mythical grail lineage to the reader. She did report that it was considered 
a dangerous secret in medieval times. And the Roman church, of course, had a vested interest in suppressing the idea that Jesus the Nazarene may have been married and left children behind to carry on his line as a secret hidden church of the royal blood. Although this was a dangerous heresy in the Middle Ages, the idea resurfaced in the Renaissance and was entertained by the Rosicrucians, especially in their chemical wedding document. With this in mind, let us quote the relevant passages from our cult of the Sangreal. The first of their number, Lord Bowcloud Rider, whereafter Solomon did build a temple to his consort, the fairest Tarte, her prince, the very dying god, born from the myrrh tree, whose funerary resin invokes the planet of resurrection. From sacred Afaka, high in the Lebanon, his yearly blood reddens the river Adonis and stains the mare and turnip even to this day. When from summer solstice to autumn equinox, he lies entombed in the back of beyond, Waiting the nectar of life sparkling in her chalks. Spiraling down through the seven gates of seven worlds, born by the dancing maiden, eternal princess of the grail. Not a cup of wine, blood of death, and mournful memory of a pale lord returning not till earth herself lies doomed under the wormwood star, but a cup of mead, sunborn honeydew of heaven, the very zra of macroprosopus, for a green and horned prince of thunder and his winsome vernal bride. Now, you'll note that the grail is born by the goddess bride and filled with honey mead rather than wine. Now, this conforms to the sacrament in Joseph and Asenath, an early Christian allegory of the marriage of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, and also to the Oemalus sacrament in our Craterapoa. The grail is a cup of life, not a celebration of death. And so, to continue the poem. These same Tyrian mysteries traveled thence to Egypt to the Ptolemies, even to learned Alexandria, where thrice greatest Hermes did declare in his commander that he had caused to descend earthward a great chalice, a prize for the souls thirsting after wisdom, the only gnosis of immortality. Our hermetic magical religion was classical paganism's last desperate effort to save its deepest and most profound secrets from the destructive rampage of Christian fanaticism that swept the Mediterranean world in the 4th and 5th centuries. The great university and library of Alexandria in Egypt was the birthplace of our hermetic tradition. The Craterapoa initiatory system that we use in the order of the Temple of Astarte is an amalgam of Alexandrian hermetic rites and teachings from that era. According to Hermes Trismegistus, the Crater, or the Hermetic Grail, was sent down to earth and stationed in the midst, as it were, as a prize for the souls. In other words, look within yourself. The crater is also an ancient symbol of rebirth, written in the stars, Plato's cauldron of becoming. Souls returning to earth must drink from it before completing their spiral course to the sign of their nativity. The quest for the earthly grail is forever linked to an understanding of the celestial grail. In Parsibal, the most mystical of the medieval grail romances, 
a hermetic master reveals that the grail is a luminous green stone that fell from the stars. And to continue the poem, is it not true that the urgent masters from far Iran, heirs to those ancients who passed the golem secret to Venerable Father Abram, those who yet worship the seven wonders of the starry vault, Sabaean wizard lords of zodiac and magic, who were sages to the caliphs of Islam, did honor Hermes Trismegistus as their prophet and preserve his teachings with their own arcanum at the courts of Moorish Spain in the years of the Holy Kabbalah by the word of she who blackens. This last line, she who blackens, is a coded reference to Picatrix, a Sabean hermetic magical grimoire which came from the Spanish universities of the early Middle Ages where Sabean star magicians, Jewish Kabbalists, Valentinian Gnostic Christians all came together to exchange ideas and give birth to what would eventually become the Rosicrucian tradition in Europe. And as the poem has it, Did not these same Sabean Magi entrust their key unto the knights and ladies of Montsauvat, companions of the Sangreal and Lost Languedoc in the bygone days of the troubadours? And was it not written in the Parseval that in the season of Saturn the wounded Amfortus did lie in cruelest agony, the land laid waste and barren about the castle, the ancient curse of Moat? demanding of the hero a forbidden question. Now, modern scholars have found a fascinating connection between the star lore and magic of the Sabaeans and that most mysterious of the medieval Holy Grail accounts, Wolfram von Essenbach's Percival. The enlightened civilization of early medieval Moorish Spain was equaled in the southern French province of Languedoc. This was the prosperous and cultured society that gave birth to European chivalry. Arthurian and Holy Grail literature first flowered there. And the famous courts of love of the troubadours, where our concept of romantic love originated, flourished in this actual counterpart of a mythical Camelot. But in the 13th century, the popularity of mystical Gnostic Christianity in the area brought down the wrath of Mother Church in the form of an unholy crusade that laid waste to the beautiful land and slaughtered its gentle, cultured people. Over a million were killed. The Gnostic Christian Cathars were exterminated, along with the less known and more secretive Valentinian Gnostic cult of the Sangreal, whom we have reason to believe had rediscovered the origin and significance of the grail as written in the stars and also equated with the bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And the forbidden question the hero asks the wounded grail king is, what ails you, father? Now the answer is simple. I'm afraid to die, my son. And as the poem has it, If darkness be the everlasting chalice of light, 
then why do we fear death as an ending? Rather, we should but respect it as a voyage beyond, perhaps to service at the circle round. If, therefore, the call sounds clearer in your heart, inflaming the diamond of your own rose-red star, know then that thou art of the twice-born, and the great work lies before thee. Initiation is but an awakening and a coming home. Well, the circle round, of course, refers to King Arthur's round table, which was created by the hermetic magician Merlin as a council board for the king and the leaders of his kingdom. It was a microcosm of the universe. Table represented the zodiac, with Arthur seated in the center as the sun, and an empty chair for the knight who found the grail. Symbolically, it had 12 or 24 seats, but it could expand or contract in size and number to accommodate new members. Wolfram von Essenbach described the grail as a glowing green stone having its origin in the stars. In other words, the human soul. We all have this divine soul within us. It whispers to us in our quiet, reflective moments. Most humans die without ever finding the grail within. They have immortality, but they can't share it because they are not aware of that element of their own nature which survives. The diamond of thine own rose-red star refers to this holy grail stone within each of us. The great work of the Western magic is literally the quest for this inner grail. The allegory of purification and the ordeal in the quest myth is symbolic of the transcendence of selfish physical vanity and emotional gratification necessary to behold the inner divinity and eventually merge our consciousness with it. Only then may we dare to sit in the siege perilous at the table round. To accomplish this, we must master the grail hallows, the work of the chalice, the sword, and the shield, and the lance. For it is written that the secret of the grail is the fourfold nature of the work, fourfold within as without, and in subtle realms beyond. Man, even as God, writes with the wand and emblazons with the sword, letters and symbols in a spectrum of fire. Woman, like unto goddess, nurtures the glyphs in her cup, giving them substance from her pentacle, the ineffable vowels. And yet there is that in man which is womanly and that in woman which is manly. Hence all tools of the word should be thine in tasks of the art. Now, Hermes teaches us that our soul is androgynous. Therefore, the first task of the magician should be to develop and balance both the male and female aspects of his or her personality. In psychological terms, this is the Jungian process of individuation. In the OTA, we symbolically accomplish this on our astral journey up the 31st path to the sphere of Hod. This fusing of the four elements into an integrated spiritual identity that can come to know that shining being within is the secret purpose of the four grail hallows. There are the traditional working tools, these are the traditional working tools of the magician. We may also speculate 
that these implements in their most primitive form, the spear, the knife, the cup, and the dish, are the very weapons and tools that once made us human. Whoso enlivens the microcosm shall transcend as a free and winged soul to follow the raven beyond the western gate where the dragon rides the quarter, marching in procession with the grail to equinox. And even as the seven-veiled goddess brings death unto death, so shall the epic of the softborns be soon a-dawning, when the seekers shall be masters, and the lifeblood shall be light. This concludes the cult of the Sangreal. The poem integrates Solomonic magic, the Alexandrian hermetic tradition, the Kabbalah, Masonic, and Rosicrucian themes with the original Gnostic Palantidian Christianity and the Arthurian Holy Grail and Roundtable legends. It is, in fact, an amalgam of the elements that make up the Western esoteric tradition, and it fits remarkably well into the initiatory framework of the 18th century Kratarapoa. However, without extensive commentary, our poem may raise more questions than it answers, especially about the Arthurian connections. As I said above, before we immerse ourselves in this controversial subject, let us, revi- let us revisit our position as, re- as revealed in the poem. And having done so, we may move on to consider why Arthurian romant- the Arthurian romantic cycle is controversial in relation to Hermetic and Rosicrucian validity. The two major problems about King Arthur and his court are when and where. As to when, almost everyone agrees on the 6th century AD in Britain, which is based on Geoffrey of Monmouth's British history, which of course is more fanciful than historical. Although Christianity had come to Roman Britain at the time. King Arthur and his court may very well have been pagan. Arthur's mentor and counselor, Merlin, seems to represent a lingering pagan tradition. And this is reflected in his creation of the round table as an earthly representation of the zodiac. One imagines Merlin reading Macrobius, which was available in his time. But the empty Siege Perilous depends on a Christian interpretation of the Grail legend. Although this was certainly a later development, the original original French and German versions feature a Grail that is either a feeding vessel or a spiritual talisman. As to where, consider that most of the Grail literature originates in southern France and became the inspiration for the early medieval troubadour tradition, which flourished in that area long before it rose in England. This is what was behind Monty Python's King Arthur asking the French knight if he had a holy grail and receiving the reply, Yes, we have a holy grail, and it's better than your holy grail, you stupid English person, you. I fought in your general direction. You all remember that one. If there ever was a royal court like Camelot in the 6th century AD, it would have to have been in southern France. But we have to wonder why the Christian element did not enter the French Grail romances until Robert de Baron in the 13th century. Now this is strange because Mary Magdalene, 
Joseph of Arimathea and their entourage supposedly landed near Marseille and settled in the Rhone River Valley back in the 2nd century A.D. And we know that the Valentinian Gnostic Christianity flourished in that region for the next 200 years. The Valentinian priest magician Marcus offered communion with his priestess, offering a goblet which allegedly turned water into wine. The British Grail connection is attributed to Joseph of Arimathea, who went on to Britain after Mary Magdalene died. He founded the Abbey at Glastonbury to enshrine the Grail. Now we should mention the Scythian or Sarmatian connection. The Romans had employed Sarmatian cavalry regiments in Britain, much like the Tsars later employed Cossacks in uh, building their empire. And in a similar manner, many Sarmatians stayed and settled in with the Britons. Although they had similar myths, being Indo-European like the Celts, their main contributions to the Arthurian tradition were military. They invented the stirrup. If you don't have a stirrup, you can't joust. And they, they wore heavy scale mail armor, and they had dragons in their mythology and in their Scythian animal-style art, whereas the Celts did not. Now, this makes us wonder if Uther Pendragon, Arthur's father, might have been a Sarmatian. As far as the sword and the stone legend, that derives from the ancient Bronze Age method of casting molten bronze in a stone mold. And the European Celts were masters of that process. Of course, we're all familiar with the grail hallows as used in the four suits of the tarot. Wands and swords are attributed to the masculine elements of fire and air, and cups and pentacles to the female elements of water and earth. This quaternary of the elements is reflected throughout the entire hermetic spectrum of the universe in both microcosm and microcosm. Astrology, alchemy, and Kabbalah, it is a universal manifestation of the tetragrammaton formula, the Kabbalistic YHVH. Although we contend that YHVH is a later usurpation of the original Shama'ata, which were the letters attributed to the elements. Sheen to fire, mem to water, left to air, and ta to Saturn, the beginning of the physical universe. However, in either case, the fourfold formula is the key to the entire magical structure of the universe. And Merlin's round table can be considered a temple or vault in which the adepts of a great occult order can come together combine their magical minds and focus their willpower and psychic talents on worthy tasks in service to God and humankind. In his Secret Teachings of All Ages, illustrious Manly Palmer Hall shows a diagram of the round table from Hargrave Jennings' Rosicrucian Rites and Mysteries, and he summarizes the occultities as follows. Arthur was famous for establishing the Order of the Round Table at Winchester. Reliable information is not to be had concerning the ceremonies and initiatory rituals of the Table Round. In one story, the Table was endowed with the powers of expansion and contraction so that 15 or 1,500 could be seated around it. 
according to whatever the need might arise. The most common accounts fixed the number of knights who could be seated at one time at the round table at either 12 or 24. The 12 signified the signs of the zodiac and also the apostles of Jesus. The knight the knights' names and also their heraldic arms were emblazoned on the chairs. When 24 are shown seated at the table, each of the 12 signs of the zodiac are divided into two parts, a light and a dark half, to signify the nocturnal and diurnal phases of each sign. As each sign of the zodiac is ascending for two hours every day, so the 24 knights represent the hours the 24 elders before the throne in the book of Revelation, and 24 Persian deities who preside, who represent the spirits of the divisions of the day. And in the center of the table was the symbolic rose of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the symbol of resurrection in that he rose from the dead. There was also a mysterious empty seat called the Siege Perilous, in which none might sit except he who was successful in his quest for the Holy Grail. In the personality of Arthur is to be found a new form of the ever-current, recurrent cosmic myth. The Prince of Britain is the sun. His knights are the zodiac, the signs of the zodiac, and the flashing sword may be the sun's rays with which he fights and vanquishes the dragons of darkness, or it may represent the Earth's axis. Arthur's round table is the universe. The siege perilous is the throne of the perfected man in his terrestrial sense. Arthur is the grand master of a secret Christian Masonic brotherhood of philosophical mystics. I might mention that that Winchester uh, Zodiac is, is uh, uh, was created uh, in the reign of Edward III back in the in the uh, 13th century, and uh, it, it's still yeah, it was re- repainted uh, by Henry VIII, who put a Tudor rose in the center of it. Uh, okay, all of this fits into the Craterapoa system and culminates the higher degrees. The Grail Quest symbolizes the initiate's progress in the great work, which begins with the first four operations of alchemy attributed to the four elements, the four seasons and the sacred marriage, all set forth in the first degree Pastophorus. In the second degree Neochorus, the candidate must memorize the following. The great work of the esoteric tradition is the quest of the grail upon the altar of the temple within. This holy grail is nothing less than our immortal soul, the divine and transcendent aspect of our being. Although we can create nothing to equal the glory of our soul, we can build an inner temple within where we may enshrine the grail by perfecting the rites and symbols of our sacred heart, thereby enabling us to bring our personalities in touch with the divinity so that the spirit may transform the mind to an enlightened state of perception, thus enabling us to share in the adventure of an ever-continuing and evolving consciousness. In other words, it's the secret of immortality. In the third degree, Milano Forest, the initiate undertakes the most important aspect of the great work, the Holy Guardian Angel Retreat and Vision Quest. 
In this process, he or she will follow the instructions of Hermes Trismegistus, who declared that we, in fact, have three guardian angels. Two are assigned at birth. One of these represents the exact degree of our ascendant, the other, the planetary ruler of the ascendant, and the third, and most important, is our angel who represents God beyond and above the zodiac and the planets. This is the angel who can override the influences of the other two and the elements they represent. This is the voice within that may eventually lead us to take our seat in the forbidden siege perilous at the round table. And so we conclude our exploration of the Holy Grail on the round table in the Western esoteric tradition. Now, I hope you have found this subject interesting and perhaps even inspiring. And we welcome your questions and comments. Please go to the Hermetic Hour website and let us hear from you. And if you are inspired, then go to chsota.org and investigate our associate member program. And don't forget that you'll be hearing from us next week with another magical topic. And until then, happy summer solstice and good magic.